Good morning, everybody. We're going to go ahead and get started. Thank you for being down here. So feels early still. I guess if everybody's from the East Coast, though, it's not too bad at 9:10. Our course to this morning is Pelvis Gone Wild: A Sordid Tale of Mus- Musculoskeletal Dysfunction. Our faculty today is Meryl oh, Alapatu. Alapatu, thank you. She is a research assistant professor at the University of Florida. Please help me welcome Meryl Alapatu. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here. Um, As some of you might know, Florida's undergoing a little visit from a friend called Irma um, right now, and so trying to get back there, hopefully before the storm hits Gainesville. We're about two hours north of Orlando, and of course the storm just is coming uh, straight up the middle of the state, so trying to stay safe and um, get back there. So before we get started, um, I, first of all, I want to thank the International Pelvic Pain Society and also Pain Week for coming together and coordinating um, four of us to present lectures um, here at Pain Week. Uh, so very excited for the opportunity. I do have a few disclosures. Um, I'm on the board of directors for the Florida Physical Therapy Association and the American Physical Therapy Association section on women's health. Um, and then financial disclosures, I'm an owner of uh, Stylify U and evidence-based pelvic education consultants. So if you want to nap for the next hour, here's what you will get from these slides. Um, what we're going to be talking about today, we're going to be talking about key musculature in the pelvic region uh, that contributes to pelvic pain in women. Uh, We're going to also discuss the sexual and psychological impacts of this pain and take a look at the differences in pain sensitivity, motor performance in women with pelvic pain compared to healthy women. Um, We're also going to talk about discussing, um, recognizing the importance of how we as healthcare providers can shape patient expectations when referring to a provider that's going to treat or examine the pelvic region. And then finally, I want to end with explaining the general components of a musculoskeletal um, pelvic examination. So in order to take you through this sordid tale of musculoskeletal dysfunction, I'm first going to start with a broader perspective of pelvic pain. Next, we'll see how the musculoskeletal system can contribute to it. Um, Specifically, we're going to cover briefly just the anatomy and function, some of the key pelvic floor musculature and associated musculature, Um, and then talk about how uh, pain modulation can be affected in these patients and how emotional and behavioral factors can influence the pain experience and sexual function. Um, and I've never personally been to a talk where people are talking about sex and the pelvic floor and genitalia where you fall asleep, so I don't anticipate this happening, but I do want to keep this somewhat interactive. And so we're going to start with the case, and if you'd like to um, participate in the case-based question at the end of this case, if you want to text the number 22333, um, you can text uh, the following M-E-R-Y-L, A-L-A-P-P-A-T-816 as the message itself, and that'll hook you into the poll that we're going to start with. So first things first, um, let's start with a case. But before, actually, before we do that, I told you what this talk is going to be. What it's not going to be, I think, is also important, you know, as a frame of reference. I'm not going to go into a ton of detail, or very much detail at all, really, about treatment for musculoskeletal pain. Um, you know, in a 50-minute talk, it's just not 
uh, feasible to go through that and everything else that I want to cover. Sandy Hilton, however, tomorrow will be talking about some of the treatment options um, tomorrow afternoon. So definitely recommend that you go to her talk. So let's, talk, let's start with the case then, a clinical case. This was published in physical therapy um, a decade ago, and I think it's, it's uh, an interesting case, particularly in the context of musculoskeletal pelvic pain. So this is a 25-year-old female, uh, relatively young. She awoke suddenly with left-sided lumbosacral and hip pain. She went to the emergency department while she was there. She had a negative urinalysis, and she was prescribed narcotics, NSAIDs, and muscle relaxants. After being discharged from the emergency room, she continued to experience this severe pain. She went to see a primary care provider who ordered some imaging, which turned out to be unremarkable, and was, she was subsequently referred to an orthopedic surgeon, who then prescribed her, provided her with a lumbosacral support garment, more medications, and also recommended that she used heat. She was also referred to a physical therapist. So the physical therapist, the musculoskeletal examination and history taking revealed that this particular patient had a history of low back pain for the last five years. She also reported an increase in urinary urgency for the last two years. Um, she did not have any pain with menstruation. She did exhibit a painful or antalgic gait, um, and her pain intensity was pretty severe. So seven out of 10 at rest, and then after a half an hour of walking increase to a nine out of 10. And her Oswestry Disability Index score was a 50%, which indicates that her perception of her disability was pretty severe. In terms of the examination, the physical therapist noted that she had some postural changes, exaggerated um, lumbar lordosis and kyphosis of the thoracic spine. She had increased pain with repeated lumbar flexion, increased pain with palpation to the lower abdominal quadrant and also the lumbar paraspinals. So if we put this all together, from a this, this looks like your general nonspecific mechanical low back pain. She has low back, hip, and buttock pain. She has pain that's worse with postural change, with movement, um, some postural abnormalities, if you will. Um, and then she it also has tenderness to palpation. And her self-reported disability is high, with a 56% on the Oswestry. Non-mechanical findings or imaging findings were unremarkable. Again, um, urinalysis was negative. She did, did not have any infection. She wasn't pregnant. But then we start to look at um, some of these other factors. It turns out that she did have a family history of endocrine disorder and rheumatologic disorder. She had severe pelvic pain, sudden onset, no explanation, nothing that she could attribute this to. She also, her perceived uh, disability was, was high. And this is unusual, right? In a 25-year-old, other, otherwise healthy woman. And then left lower quadrant um, tenderness. So the proposed plan developed by this physical therapist was a two-week program of ex uh, exercises that were focused primarily on lumbar extension, um, electrical stimulation, and then progressing to stabilization exercises. So this patient does this. She lives happily ever after, or does she? The same day that this therapist saw this patient, examined this patient the first visit, he actually realized that some of her findings did not necessarily line up with what we think of as uh, your typical mechanical muscu musculoskeletal low back pain, and actually recommended that she could continue physical therapy if she wanted to for that two-week plan, 
Um, but he also wanted to refer her back to the orthopedic surgeon. She elected to not continue with PT and go back to the orthopedic surgeon, who then ordered a referral to a gynecologist. Um, gynecologist ordered a pap smear and pelvic ultrasound and then also a blood test. Um, with the blood test, they realized that her liver enzyme levels were pretty high, and they ordered an MRI of her abdominal and pelvic cavity and found that she did have a left ovarian cyst and suspected endometriosis as well. So from the medical side of this then, subsequent medical side of this, they went ahead and did a cyst removal and removal of the endometrial lesions. Um, Post-surgery, significant decrease in self-reported pain. She began on monthly Lupron shots. And the nine months post-surgery, her pain was minimal. It was intermittent instead of constant. She was able to return to work and her previous level of function. So if you want to participate in the poll then, the question is, there we go. What may have been missing from this examination? So you have three choices. If you think sacroiliac joint movement testing was missing, press A. If you think a pelvic floor muscle examination was missing, press B. Visceral mobility assessment, press C. And when I'm talking about examination, I'm talking about the physical therapist examination. Give you guys five more seconds. Okay, so 13% of you think sacroiliac joint, and we're tied for pelvic floor muscle examination and visceral mobility assessment. So in my opinion, as a licensed physical therapist that specializes in pelvic floor dysfunction, the thing that I think was missing from this was the pelvic floor examination. And how many physical therapists do we have in the audience? Okay, so a fair amount. And then physicians, pharmacists, uh, what, nursing? Nurses? Okay, so we've got a good mix of people here. So I'm not sure if you guys are aware of this, but when physical therapists are typically trained in musculoskeletal practice, at least, and you know, I don't think my case is atypical, but we started with the ankle, we learned about the ankle, then we went to the knee and to the hip, low back, sacroiliac joint, and then we moved on to the upper extremity, missing this entire section of the body. And so this was taught in a separate course outside of our musculoskeletal practice course by someone else. And so, you know, it doesn't surprise me that pelvic floor muscle examination wasn't included as part of this case because really within the last, I would say, 10 years, there's been a much bigger shift um, by a lot of us pelvic therapists you know, to what we call putting the pelvis back into the body and recognizing that the pelvic floor is an important part of our core, it's an important part of our body, and we cannot truly differentially diagnose um, hip pain, low back pain, sacroiliac joint pain, groin pain, without at least screening for dysfunction of the pelvic floor muscles. And that doesn't necessarily mean doing an examination, but it does involve some targeted questioning that may lead us to that, to that position. So, now we're going to go into, you know, we, we went through this case. Now we're going to go into, you know, general what is, what is pelvic pain before we go into the musculoskeletal component part of it. So persistent or musculoskeletal pain, um, by definition, affects structures of the pelvis. It's associated with negative psychological, behavioral, and emotional consequences. And it's also associated with dysfunction sexually, um, organically in the urinary tract, um, bowel, pelvic floor muscles, um, and gynecologic dysfunction as well. 
As far as the epidemiology and costs of it, um, the European Association for Urology, if you look at that definition of chronic pelvic pain, anywhere from 6 to 27 percent. Um, dyspareunia, which is painful intercourse, anywhere from 2 to 21 percent, excuse me, um, and dysmenorrhea, which is painful menstruation, depending on the studies that you read, anywhere from 16 to 81%. And we had this discussion earlier um, in um, Susie's talk this morning of you know, what's normal when we talk about uh, dysmenorrhea, painful menstruation in particular. Is it normal to have mild cramping? Is it normal to be debilitated, uh, unable to get out of bed because your menstrual cramps, cramps are, so, are so terribly painful? Um, you know, for me personally, I, it wasn't until the age of 25 that I went to finally go see a gynecologist who prescribed birth control for my severe dysmenorrhea. But before that, you know, when I first started menstruating, my mother said, well, take some, take some Aleve, take some Tylenol, you'll be fine, it's not a big deal, everyone goes through that. So for me, it was very normalized. When a lot of our patients come back, come, come and see us, their first, the first thing that they say is, well, I just thought this was part of being a woman. So I just kind of dealt with it. And I didn't know that there was help that I could get for it. From an economic standpoint, um, chronic pelvic pain is pretty costly. So almost a billion dollars a year in outpatient visits alone. And it accounts for 20% of hysterectomies and 40% of um, laparoscopic surgeries in the United States. Now, similar to other chronic pain conditions, pelvic pain is not homogenous. Let's say that this is a conference. This is a, this is a conference of um, patients with vulvodynia. So every single one of these women in this audience have vulvodynia. They have the same diagnosis, but if you bring that patient or these patients into the clinic with you and sit down and talk with them, you'll find a wide variety of how they experience pain and the impact of their pain, physically, sexually, um, on their relationships, etc. This is a study that we did at the University of Florida. Um, we looked at uh, women with, with pelvic pain. And you know, the, the purpose of me putting this up is I want to show you just the, the amount of medical diagnoses that these women have. There's significant overlap. So chronic pelvic pain, dyspareunia, dysmenorrhea, um, endometriosis, for example. So despite the diagnosis, however, these women clinically look similar. Okay, um, they have pelvic floor muscle pain with palpation. They report sexual dysfunction in addition to their pain. There's a negative impact on their health-related quality of life, negative impact on their partner intimacy and uh, relationships. And they also, um, they also exhibit signs of psychological and pain-related distress as well. I think it's important to note that very few women come in with a single complaint, i.e., I only have pain with intercourse, or I only have pain with menstruation. And so you can see here is that there's pretty significant overlap between I have pelvic pain, I have pelvic pain with intercourse, I have pelvic pain with, um, with menstruation. So very few of these things um, are standalone conditions. So we've talked about pelvic pain in general. Let's narrow our focus a little bit to musculoskeletal pelvic pain. So simply put, musculoskeletal pain is a component of pelvic pain in women. And you know, this, this, can, uh, this can affect men as well. Um, we're going to focus um, primarily on female pelvic pain today. We can't say with certainty that the pelvic floor muscles cause pelvic pain. 
but we can say that they contribute to um, the pain that these women experience. And this is, the, this is the case for a variety of different pain conditions that affect the pelvic region, including vulvodynia, um, endometriosis, irritable bowel disease, and pelvic inflammatory disease, for example. So if we take a closer look at what this looks like, the pelvic floor muscles um, are, are the ones that people think, typically think of when we talk about um, pelvic pain. Um, the internal, the, the pelvic diaphragm, and then also the external pelvic diaphragm as well. Some closely associated muscles um, in the pelvic region, the iliacus, muscles in the psoas as well. So if we look at the pelvic floor muscles, if we think about the functions of the pelvic floor muscles, number one is supportive in nature. These are the, these are the muscles that hold up our pelvic organs and, and keep everything from falling out below us, if you will. Um, they're also important for sexual health, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, and then re re the relaxation of these muscles is important to allow for the passage of urine and also fecal matter. And so when we think about the pelvic diaphragm or these muscles, these internal muscles, these are the muscles that people think of when they talk about Kegel exercises. Who's ever heard of a Kegel exercise? Raise your hand. Who's doing their Kegels right now? Okay. Um, so when we, these are the muscles that people typically think about when we talk about pelvic floor muscles. But there are also what we call these external pelvic floor muscles of the urogenital diaphragm as well. So there are more muscles that can also contribute to the pain that these women feel. So these are the, um, the external pelvic floor muscles, the bulbospongiosis, the ischiocavernosis, um, the transverse perineal muscles, and then also the external sphincter. So from a functional perspective, so men and women, uh, first thing to note, men and women both have pelvic floor muscles. Men and women also have these external pelvic floor muscles as well. O orientation wise, they're oriented slightly differently, um, but very similar uh, between the two. Functionally, they serve some different um, functions for men versus women. So the bulbospongiosis first, this um, compresses the vestibular bulb and constricts the opening of the vagina um, in women. In men, it compresses the bulb of the penis and the spongy urethra, and it's important for expulsion of the last drops of urine and also semen. The ischiocavernosis fixes and stabilizes the lower body, uh, the, the perineal body, in men and women, I'm sorry, compresses the corpus cavernosum of the penis and, and the clitoris. Um, superficial transverse and perineal muscles, so that you're, that's we're talking right here. These are the muscles that fix and stabilize the perineal body. And then in both sexes, it's, this, these muscles are responsible for expelling the last drops of urine. And then in men, these are responsible for expelling um, semen as well. And so. Some of this information you may have already learned about in your, in your previous training, but I think it's important when we're talking to our patients about this stuff, it's important for them to realize that these muscles do have certain functions and that these functions can be affected if these muscles are in pain. And so this is just part of that education that we give to our patients. So wouldn't it be so great if a patient came into your clinic and said, you know what? My left transverse perineal muscle is really hurting me. 
I think I need you to focus on that for treatment today. But that's not typically what we see. And if, you, if you're used to treating uh, musculoskeletal pain, you'll know that it's very often is it a, you know, a focal specific area that's in pain. Usually it's a more diffuse area. Um, and because of the relationship or the location of the pelvic floor muscles, this the pain can be referred to different areas. And so the pelvic floor muscles, they, they're not keeping the pain to that pelvic rear. They want to share it. They want to spread it out a little bit more. And when we look at the anatomy of the pelvis and how complex of an area this is and how much surrounding musculature that we have in a, in a relatively small area of our body, um, it, it's not really surprising of, of what that looks like. Uh, when it comes to different types of pain. So it's not surprising that patients can come in, similar to our patient in the case, can come in with low back pain, with hip pain, with abdominal pain, with groin pain, with buttocks pain. And so this goes back to that whole idea with differential diagnosis for patients with musculoskeletal pain, we can't simply ignore that the pelvic floor muscles may be contributing to this pain and, and and treat them otherwise, or treat them as, a, as if the pelvic floor muscles don't exist. So we have to be able to screen for that. So some of the associated musculature um, in which patients report pain. So there's the psoas major and the iliacus muscles, the muscles of the femoral triangle, so in the groin area. And then posteriorly, we've also got our piriformis, obturator internus, and so if you've got patients with low back pain, with sacroiliac joint pain, this is, um, these are common areas um, that we also want to screen for if we're suspecting, if, if, if the patient comes in with pelvic pain or, or, or not, or if they come in with any of these other areas. And typically what patients will report in terms of pain is they can report achiness, they can report dullness, sometimes patients, patients will report sharp pain, can report burning pain, um, pressure. And when you're examining these patients, you not only find that they may have pain in some of these associated areas, but they'll also have weakness as well. So different parts of the pelvis can be painful. What about other areas of the body? So when we think about pelvic pain, we expect there to be pain in this pelvic region, right? Um, as we've embraced more of a focus on the disease of chronic pain, we've also examined the role of pain modulation and the potential role it plays in the maintenance of pain and the pain experience of these women. And so what we found is that not only do patients with pelvic pain have this pain in their, you know, their immediate pelvic area, but they're also more sensitive to stimuli at different parts of the body, at remote parts of the body away from this local region, the shoulder, the neck the lower extremities. Um, and if you don't believe me, there are people that are far smarter than I, than I am that have actually looked at this in experimental settings. This is a bit of an older study. This is from 2003, but it's one of my um, favorite studies. This is um, a study of women with endometriosis compared to healthy women. And so they introduced a painful stimulus at the hand and asked women with endometriosis and healthy women to draw the pain that they are experiencing. And you see, this is the same stimulus, both hands, you see the, the difference in 
how they're drawing their pain, women with endometriosis compared to healthy controls. They also tested them pressure pain sensitivity at a variety of different locations in the body, both uh, locally in the pelvic region, the low back region, but also remotely um, at the thigh, the arm, and the hand as well. And consistently, women with endometriosis were not able to tolerate as much pressure before they reported a painful sensation. Some of the work that we've done at the University of Florida, um, we looked at women with um, chronic pelvic pain and um, healthy women. And this is just local stimuli, so pressure pain sensitivity to the vaginal vestibule and also internally um, to the mucosa overlying the pelvic floor muscles. And even though we've got women with pelvic pain in red and healthy controls in blue, even though the amount of force that these women were able to take in terms of pressure pain threshold was the same. You see what's significantly different is the amount of pain that they're reporting. So their perception of pain is significantly higher despite being able to, to uh, take the same amount of pressure pain. In terms of tone, which is what we hear a lot as well, um, women with pelvic pain have higher resting tone compared to healthy women as well. So I've showed you thus far that there are pain modulatory and muscular function changes in women with pelvic pain, and that the pain can spread to related areas of the body, can show up in related areas of the body, um, which is key in the differential diagnosis. The next component of the sordid tale is the impact on sexual health and psychological well-being. So to get started on you know, what this impact is and how it helps us, I want you all to imagine. I want you to imagine the worst sex, or not even imagine, think about it. What's the worst sex that you've ever had? Now I want you to imagine having it for a decade. And now I want you to imagine not that it's just bad sex, it's bad sex because it hurts and it's debilitating. And it's been like this for years, for decades even. And it keeps you debilitated for days following this intercourse. Um, because you don't want to disappoint your partner, you don't say anything, and you continue to have this intercourse. Or you do the opposite, and you avoid intercourse. And it causes significant strain on your relationship. And when you finally decide to reach out to get help, it literally takes years to find a provider that's able to, to, to manage your pain, work with a multidisciplinary team, and, and provide you some level of relief. The study that I showed, showed you earlier with the women with the multiple different diagnoses, on average, it was five and a half years that those women um, went from provider to provider to find um, a pelvic pain specialist. Oop. So, Sexual intercourse is a, is a big debilitating problem for these women. Um, women with pelvic pain tend to think differently about intercourse when it com compared to healthy women. So they're more fearful of having intercourse. They're hypervigilant or they're, they're waiting for intercourse to be painful when it's happening. And they also focus more heavily on the sensation of pain during intercourse. Um, Unsurprisingly, they have lower levels of sexual desire and arousal across the board. So they're off put by intercourse, and that, you know, that's, not really, that's not really surprising. 
So what do we know thus far about musculoskeletal pelvic pain? We know that there are motor performance changes. We know that there are differences in how women think about their pain. And we know that there are differences in uh, local and remote pain sensitivity in these women compared to healthy women. There are other associated um, contributors as well. So drugs or other therapies. Um, the interaction or influence of provider, the person that you're working with, if you have a good relationship with them, past experiences with providers as well, and then social support is another, is another aspect of this. So we know many things contribute to the pain experience of women with pelvic pain. We still don't know that when studies report particular interventions were successful in treating these women or effectively relieve their pain, we don't really know why. A lot of these interventions aren't standardized. Um, they're not, their local and remote pain sensitivity aren't addressed and the emotional and cognitive influences on pain aren't considered. I think this is, this is definitely changing and studies are starting to incorporate this to a much greater extent, but we still don't know why if, when, an, when an intervention, when a study says that an intervention improves pelvic pain, is it because there's something that changed pelvic floor or associated muscle structure function? Are women simply thinking differently about their pain? Are they thinking differently about having intercourse? Are they less fearful of this? Um, that's, that's really what we're trying to, to get at right now. And so what we still don't know is of these different factors, how do these different variables contribute to each other and influence each other and ultimately influence the experience of, uh, of pelvic pain? So, Let's talk a little bit then, you know, let's get into this, this evaluation of musculoskeletal pain. So if you're a provider that is, you suspect your patient has musculoskeletal pelvic pain or the, the muscular skeletal system is involved and you want to send your patient to a that manages this, um, what, you know, why, why should you care about what a musculoskeletal pelvic pain examination looks like. You know, if you're not a physical therapist, you're not a physiatrist that manages this, you're not going to be treating the musculoskeletal component about this, what, why, do you, why should you even care and why am I even talking about this? Well, one of the biggest things that I think we take for granted in healthcare is patient expectations. So patient expectations can influence um, treatment outcomes to a significant extent. We've done some work at UF that shows um, for patients with a variety of different musculoskeletal conditions, it doesn't matter what intervention, what physical therapist intervention you actually applied, it's their pre-intervention expectations about that treatment that they were going to receive that influenced their outcomes rather than the intervention itself. So expectations are important to outcomes, both expectations from the patient and then also healthcare in general. So if you're a referring provider, you're the first source, you're the first place that that patient's going to get an idea of what this musculoskeletal examination from a physical therapist or other healthcare provider that's going to be providing this um, is going to look like. And to give you guys an example of this, um, this is my mother and me, and my mom is a nurse. Uh, she's retired now. She worked most of the time in labor and delivery, and then the last bit of her career was in mental health. So this is actually 10 years ago, almost 10 years ago, when I graduated from PT school. 
And I said, oh, mom, you know, she wanted to know how my, my, my work was going. And she said, oh, are you working in a hospital? Because that's the environment that she worked in. I said, no, I'm actually working in outpatient PT, um, and I'm working with women who have pelvic pain. And she said, oh, really? Well, that's interesting. You know, I don't know much about that. What do you do with them? Do you do exercises? Do you do massage? And I say, yeah, exercises, you know, are, are part of it. But also a lot of these women seem to... Um, seem to do well with vaginal massage. <laughs> so this is 2008, right? So calls still dropped all the time. And so I'm sitting there, and you know, she doesn't say anything. Mom, mom, hello, are you there? So I'll spare you her Indian accent, but her question was, what sort of physical therapy do you do in the vagina? I mean, she was horrified. And this is a woman, she was, you know, she's, she's a nurse, she's intelligent, she'd worked in this, in this area for quite a long time. But, you know, and this is kind of an extreme example, but imagine if you have a patient that asks you, you know, well, what should I expect from this PT examination, this musculoskeletal examination, and your, your response is, mm -hmm. Just go. It'll be fine. They'll take care of you. That's not shaping an expectation in a, in a positive way for that patient. So like we said, patient expectations are, are extremely important, and we, ha we, we need to consider them. Where do they come from? They come from a variety of different sources. Um, several aspects contribute to this. So the words that we use as healthcare providers, even the site of us, the clinics, um, the, the clinical setting that we're in, um, the interactions patients have with other people. Because of um, technology, the world is a much smaller place now. There are so many forums, whether it's online or Facebook or whatever, where patients can go on and talk to other people about their experiences. So they may come to you with a set of preconceived notions or expectations for what you should be doing as their providers for pelvic pain. Um, and then obviously also the past, ex past experiences they've had um, for the specific condition for which they're seeking care. So many of these expectations we as healthcare providers have no control over. We don't have control over what previous experiences they've had, what personal beliefs and expectations that they have, but we do have control over how and what we say to, their, to these patients about their pelvic pain how we describe why we're referring a patient to a particular provider um, and what that provider is going to do. Um, you know, suggesting that referring to a particular provider is a last resort option. Well, we've tried everything else, so let's just try this. Doesn't necessarily instill much hope or positive expectation for that patient that's coming to, to that provider. Um, Simply put, our words as healthcare providers have power, and we have a responsibility to positively shape expectations for treatment. Now, so what can you do then? So number one, the expectations that we, we provide to our patients or help shape in our patients need to be realistic. They shouldn't be exaggerated, they shouldn't be overly positive, um, and you know, they should not be outright lies, obviously. And I think this is really important that we talk to each other as healthcare providers. I don't expect people that aren't physical therapists to know what pelvic health physical therapy is. I don't even expect necessarily physical therapists that you know, maybe specialize in orthopedics to know what, 
the pelvic health physical therapy. Similarly, I don't necessarily know what interventional techniques for you know pelvic pain. I have, I have an idea of them, but that's not what I received my training for. So it is our responsibility then to, if we're going to be referring patients to each other, we should make a concerted effort to find out, you know, generally, what are the types of treatments that you do? If the patient asks me about it, I want to be informed and I want to give them an educated perspective on what they can expect from you. So let's then get into what the musculoskeletal evaluation of the patient with pelvic pain looks like. So I guess the first question is, why would you want to send your patient with pelvic pain to a pelvic floor physical therapist or to another provider that specializes in pelvic floor dysfunction? Because it's not just physical therapists, um, but obviously I'm talking to you from a, from a PT perspective. Why not just send them to um, an orthopedic physical therapist? So to, and, and I don't know how familiar, you guys probably aren't too familiar with physical therapist training, but the foundation of our training is orthopedics. So every pelvic floor specialist, pelvic floor physical therapist also has a foundation in orthopedics. Pelvic floor physical therapists go undergo um, several hours anywhere, I mean, it, it, it ranges anywhere from 60 to 200 to a wide, a, a lot of extra training to um, understand how to perform this examination and, and treatment strategies as well. So it's important, you know, when you're first telling your patients about this, if you're going to refer them to a pelvic floor physical therapist, it's important to let them know that while they may be sent to your typical PT clinic, usually the examination and the um, evaluation takes place in a private setting. So this is not going to be something where they're out in the PT gym talking about their sexual function, urinary function, and they're certainly not going to have a pelvic floor examination out in the middle of the gym. So it is a private setting, which I think is important um, for patients to know. What am I looking for then from a, from a subjective standpoint? Oop. Okay. So from a subjective standpoint, I want to know how long they've had this pain. I'm going to ask them to describe the pain, and I'm actually going to ask them to physically point to the pain. Um, you know, during training, when you see early physical therapists um, practice, the patients will say, well, my pain's in my back. And they, they kind of just, okay, the pain's in your back. But where in your back is it? The pain's in my pelvis. Well, where exactly in your pelvis is it? And so I'm going to ask them to point to it. I also want to know, was there a specific cause or triggering event? Was this related to perhaps the trauma of childbirth or an episiotomy or C-section um, that you had? Was it, did you have a fall? Or was there, was there no cause at all? And, that, and, that's, and that's fine as well. If they have painful intercourse, I'm going to ask them, you know, quite frankly, do you have, pain, do you have painful intercourse? Um, if they do, I want them to specify what positions in particular cause pain. I'm going to ask them if they have dysmenorrhea, and particularly with the dysmenorrhea, I'm going to ask them what level of impact does it have on their daily life? Are they able to work? Are they able to exercise? Are they able to get out of bed despite the presence of pain with menstruation? The other thing is I'm going to ask them about if they have pain anywhere else in their body. Um, particularly because we know that they're more sensitive to, women with pelvic pain are more sensitive to different types of pain stimuli. I'm also going to ask them if they had any previous medical or surgical treatment for this pain. And last and probably most importantly, I'm going to find out what their goals are 
it's, you know, I can, as a physical therapist, I can create all kinds of goals based on my physical therapist exam, you know, increased range of motion, increased strength, whatever. But if it doesn't come back to or apply to what they want to get out of physical out of this treatment, it, it's not going to be meaningful to them. Um, you know, what is it that you're not able to do anymore because of your pelvic pain? Is it related to sexual function? Is it related to exercise? Is it related to work? Whatever, whatever it might be. And lots of times these patients come in and they're told that if they have pain doing certain activities, they should just stop doing those activities, which you know, is crazy. I was having a conversation yesterday with Sandy Hilton. We talk, we, we, we talk about rehab for patients following an amputation or stroke, for example. The first thing that we, you know, we ask them and what, you know, our overarching goal is let's get you doing what it is that you love doing. Let's get you back to a functioning member of society and however you view yourself in that way. With patients with pain, though, we're so used to telling people, well, if it hurts, just stop and avoid doing it. And that's not really the approach that we want to take with these people. Um, the other thing that we want to find out is what are their expectations for physical therapy? Um, have they heard anything about physical therapy before? Have they had this type of treatment before? The other thing we want to keep in um, account for is uh, responses to self-report questionnaires. So the ones that I like to use are the 0 to 10, 0 to 100 numerical pain rating scale. And I'm specific about this, not just you know, I might ask, what is your pain, what is your current pelvic pain intensity? But I'm also going to ask about pelvic pain intensity during those activities that cause them pain, whether it's cycling, um, sexual intercourse, sitting at their chair for walking, whatever it might be. So asking this question specific to those activities, um, pain catastrophizing, um, kinesiophobia, sexual function, and then the, uh, the original Oswestry Disability Index, which does include a question about excuse me, sexual function. So the question is then how do we use these questionnaires? These are screening measures, obviously, and we can also use these measures um, to assess the impact of treatment on these different domains. I was recently training a group of physical therapists, new physical therapists that were just starting out in the clinic just a couple weeks ago. And you know, they brought me in to kind of talk about outcome measures and you know, talk about some of the psychometrics and why they're important. And some of, the, some of the older therapists said, you know what, I understand that these outcome measures are important. I get that you know, we need to use them, but I just don't have time. So I'll just send my patients with them after they you know, finish with me that first visit. They'll complete them at home and then I'll just bring them back. And so what I said to them is, you know, these, these outcomes, these, these measures provide really important information that's going to shape prognosis, and it's also going to shape my treatment plan. It's going to give me information. Should I be referring to a clinical psychologist or a sexual counselor? So it seems kind of obvious, but when we give these patients these questionnaires, we need to score them while they're there, um, while we're developing a treatment plan and use them um, to help shape that treatment plan. What else is the, is the examination going to include? Um, it's also going to, I'm also going to screen for and assess these associated areas. So looking at um, hip function, the groin area, also looking at the low back, sacroiliac joint. Um, and I'm also going to, the last thing that's, that's different, different from, I would say, a pelvic musculoskeletal examination versus perhaps a low back musculoskeletal examination is um, the musculoskeletal pelvic exam. And so this is something that 
obviously I'm informing the patient about uh, before we start, and I also talk to them during, during the process. This is done um, manually, and we'll get, we'll get into that in a second. But what I'm looking at is um, the external region, so that urogenital triangle, those muscles that we talked about earlier, I'm looking to see if there's skin discoloration or erythema, if there's any scar tissue. Um, I'm going to palpate these muscles as well to see if they have any pain in these regions. And then I'm also going to screen not so much their pelvic floor muscle strength because I can't do that. Um, I, I, visually, I can't do that, but I'm just going to see if they're able to do a pelvic floor contraction or a Kegel, and then also if they're able to relax that contraction as well. And so that's the external pelvic exam. The internal pelvic exam, now this is really important. This is not the same as a gynecologic pelvic exam. I can't tell you how many patients I've had come into the clinic, I ask them to disrobe to prepare for the exam, and they say, oh, where are your stirrups? Where's the speculum? So it's not the same. So this is, you know, this is um, a manual or an exam done um, with with the finger, it's not, um, it's not a, the gynecologic exam. Um, so what we're doing with this is we're palpating the introitus. Usually this is done in a clock-like manner to see if they have pain in this region. And then also palpation um, deeper of the levator ani, the coccygeus, the obturator internus, and also um, the mucosa overlying the coccyx as well. And so that's essentially what the examination consists of. Now, as far as treatment goes, treatment largely depends on the examination findings, on the responses to the screening measures, and then finally the patient goals. Um, you know, we're, unless you specifically address these questions related to sexual function, um, pain with intercourse to these patients, you're not going to get Patients typically don't, don't just offer this information up to you unless it's asked directly. So if it's not part of an, in, in, uh, an intake form that you already use in your clinic, it needs to be part of the conversation that you're having with the patient. And you know, finally, for chronic pelvic pain, persistent pelvic pain, multidisciplinary treatment by the multiple clinical practice guidelines that have been published is what is recommended. And so what, is this, what does this mean, though? So to close, I'm going to give you guys a little story about uh, my husband's a chronic pain physician. He's an anesthesiologist. And uh, it was a Sunday morning. I was getting ready for brunch. And he was actually on the phone in a study calling some of his patients that he um, treated earlier in the week to, just to follow up with them. And I heard him say something about pelvis, and you know he gets off the phone, and I said, "Oh, did you send that patient to um, the pelvic health team at UF Health? My, my colleagues there." And he said, "Oh yeah, everyone goes to physical therapy." And I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, everyone gets a referral to physical therapy." And I said, "Yeah, but..." Did they go to physical therapy? How do they respond to physical therapy? What are they doing with them in physical therapy?" He said, "How would I know?" Uh, it's not anything, and you know, and I, you know, initially I was kind of annoyed, but I can't blame him for that. I can't fault him for that. He, why would he know what it is that a physical therapist does? Um, so it wasn't his responsibility necessarily to know what they were doing with him, with the patient, but it was his responsibility to follow up not only with the other provider, but also with the patient to see how it was, how things were going. You know, in the United States, we have um, a healthcare system that is really more referral based than a true multidisciplinary provider treatment-based. I would love to be in a room with 
gynecology, um, clinical psychology, anesthesiology, personal training, massage therapy, PT, to you know, truly have multidisciplinary care for these patients. But right now what we have is a referral system. So it does take extra effort. It does take extra time on all of our behalfs to make sure that when we refer a patient to another provider, that we're following up with that provider and we're following up with the patient to see, um, to see that they're responding to the treatment and if they are having any other issues. So what if you're not trained to manage musculoskeletal pain, if you're not trained to even examine uh, musculoskeletal pain? Obviously, you want to refer to another provider, that is, whether it's a physician, pelvic health physical therapist, um, clinical psychologist or sexual counselor. Obviously, also, we need to consider both personal and jurisdictional scope of practice in how we're examining these patients. Um, if you are looking for a pelvic and or women's health physical therapist, there is a directory online that you can go to and you can refer to. It's organized by state and by subspecialty, whether or not the therapists treat patients, or treat patients, treat uh, men, women, or children. So it's organized, um, it's organized like that. So then how does the sordid tale end? How do we get here? Number one, pelvic pain is heterogeneous. The consistent thing is that these women have pain in their pelvic region, and they can be more sensitive to different types of stimuli at different or, or at remote areas of the body. They have different ways of thinking about their pain and how it influences things like intercourse, things like their personal relationships, work relationships, and their ability to function. Um, this, this can affect their physical functioning, their sexual functioning, and psychosocial functioning as well. Many of these women have serious dysfunction or pain in the pelvic floor muscles, and it's important to uh, refer them to or work with um, a provider that is trained to examine and also manage uh, musculoskeletal pelvic pain. And it's on all of us to be able to educate our patients about what this process should look like and what to expect from, this, from these other providers. And you know, essentially, it's, it is about patient communication, and it's also about um, provider communication um, with each other. So I hope that this was informative for you all. I hope there's some information for your patients that do have pelvic pain that you're able to give them on Monday morning if you're going to refer them to a different provider and what exactly that may look like from a, from a rehab perspective. So with that, I would like to acknowledge um, my funding sources, um, the University of Florida Pain and Integrative Neuroscience Lab, Foundation for PT, um, and finally, the International Pelvic Pain Society for um, inviting me to be part of this and Pain Week organizers as well. Thank you. So I'd be happy to take questions. Yes. There may have been, yeah, there may have been some, they didn't mention that because, and I think it was probably because it was mentioned in a, or it was published in a PT physical therapy journal, they just didn't expand on that, but they didn't describe in any more detail what, what how that was related. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
Some, yes, this, most of the time, yes. I mean, and you know, there is some sort of confirmation bias. If these patients are coming to you with pelvic pain, you would expect that their pelvic floor muscles and the muscles in that region would be sore. And so typically what we do is we're palpating um, the different muscles or different locations on the right and left side. And I typically ask them, I want you to rate your pain zero to 10, zero being no pain at all, 10 being your worst imaginable pain with me palpating this specific site what we would expect them to be painful. Yeah, in, in a lot of patients, yes. And that's actually one of the diagnoses that are also oftentimes sent. You know, if we do get a patient that's referred, um, myofascial pelvic pain is, is, is one of the things as well that, that's included on that script. Yes? Some of them do, and there have been there has been um, work done in this area. I don't know for certain though that the prevalence of sexual abuse and trauma is significantly higher in this population versus the general population, but it is something that is associated with with these patients. And so we do ask about that. Um, some patients will have had treatment, whether it's past treatment or ongoing, but you always want to let them know that there are options available for them, there's treatment available if, if they'd like it. Right. Right. And that's, and that, and that's the thing is that, you know, unless you're a trained um, clinical psychologist or sexual counselor, you really want to, you want to be careful about what you're doing, you know, sexual trauma is one thing, but if that person has major depressive disorder or something like that, I certainly should not be as a physical therapist saying that I'm doing cognitive behavioral therapy or, you know, things that, that, that clinical psychologists and others are, are trained to do. Yes. Well, it seems like that was, it seems like that was kind of a, it was nothing that you noticed until after the fact. I mean, I think the number one thing that, you know, we tend to ask directly on our intake form, do you have a history of sexual or physical abuse? And if the patient does, then we follow up with that. Um, and then, you know, for patients like that, I may not do a pelvic floor examination that first day. That doesn't necessarily have to happen. And for a lot of my patients, I'll spend more time talking with them and finding out about their pain and how it's affecting their function, what they want to get out of it before I you know, lay a hand on a patient. And so it's not so much that it, it, it's required that you do it, but you really want to, and it doesn't sound like you did anything wrong. It's, it seems like it was somewhat of an anomaly, but um, 
asking about it, and then making sure, and this is where the informed consent get, get, gets in, you want to make sure that your patient knows what's going to happen with the exam, um, that they're okay with it, and that if they don't want to undergo a pelvic floor examination, they don't have to. Um, it's one of the, like again, it is one of the, the things that differentiates a pelvic floor physical therapist from your, um, your orthopedic physical therapist, but it's certainly not something that we force women um, to do, because that's just, you know, if it's something that's if that, that traumatic, why would we want to make that any worse? So not all women are educated, and we do have, I know we have some gynecologists in the audience, but I've actually been working with um, a group recently about this, and most women, from my understanding, even in the, in the prepartum, the antepartum period, unless they have an issue, they're not necessarily seeing someone um, from a rehab perspective. You know, unless they have pelvic girdle pain, incontinence, whatever that might be related to pregnancy, um, and a lot of these women are told, you know what, it takes about 8 to 12 weeks, just go back to whatever, you just start slowly, just go back to whatever it was you were doing. But this is a major, this is a major event for them. So a lot of them don't even know where to start, they're in pain, they're having issues. Um, you know, I just, I was on this, this Facebook group where a woman reported that, you know, her physician would not give her a script for PT, didn't think that she needed it postpartum. And I think that's an exception. I think that this is definitely um, changing. I think people are becoming more aware that um, postpartum issues don't just go away, um, especially when you've got a third of women a year postpartum that are still having painful intercourse. Um, so I think this is changing. I think people are becoming more aware of it, but it's still not standard practice. Okay, thank you very much.